again, turn in the Bible to Genesis 29 as we work through the Pentateuch, look through this Old Testament text, understanding God's word for us, um, his people. Just a quick note, I'd encourage you all, if you can, um, make plans to be here this Saturday for Reformation Festival. We've been doing this now for, uh, I think, four or five years, well, four or five times, um, and it's a really fun opportunity. It's a great opportunity to bring friends and family or neighbors or grandkids, whatever the case may be. It's a great opportunity. It's a good time for everyone. Um, a lot of people have been asking which reformer that I'm going to uh, be presenting this year. And the reformers, uh, the male reformers are taking a year off. So I won't be performing a first-person narrative of any reformers this year. However, we are going to hear from a female reformer this year. A lady, Jane Gray, is the person, and I'm not doing that. <laughs> so, so it was clear. Um, so uh, Andrea Toome is going to be doing that, and she's been working on that. So I encourage you to come and hear about Lady Jane Gray as well, and we'll just enjoy some time together. Um, what is, you, you might come for the spectacle of it, is that Pastor Caleb and I, we are going to run a pretty intense coffee shop this year. So we're even starting to practice making the drink. We're going to become baristas. And so you could really come and put us on the spot, bartering some frou-frou drinks if you want. Um, and we'll do the best we can. But just try to come to that. We're going to have a meeting during our, our members meeting today, and, and Luke has been leading that, and he's going to help us know some of the things we can do to volunteer, some of the things to expect during that. So stay for that if you can as well. But to the Word of God, Genesis 29, as you know, here at Grace, we, we go systematically through books of the Bible. We exposit them. We explain the meaning. We read them, explain the meaning. Um, we apply them to our lives as God would intend us in the text of Scripture and from the text of Scripture. And then as we're doing that, we come to texts like Genesis 29 that we already read today. And it's strange. And it's a little bit disconcerting. I've got good news and bad news. There is good things to glean here in Genesis 29. That's the good news. The bad news is it just gets more disconcerting from here on. The next several chapters in Genesis, they're strange. They're different. Most people probably just jump right over them when they're reading it. Or they had them and they read some of these stories in Sunday school. And it's like, yeah, something about Jacob and his wives. And it was weird. And what we are gonna, we're going to work through this. We're going to see the inspired Word of God and what God is teaching us from the text of Scripture. Um, and I think it will be encouraging to you, even if the actions of the people read about are discouraging. And that's what we find through this text. Let's pray before we begin in Genesis 29 today. Father, help us as we come to your Word that we would believe it, we'd receive it as we just sang the song. Lord, may it be true in each of us that we would receive this as the very voice of God. You are speaking to us. And the questions we have before you today in this text is, what are you saying for us? What are you, what are you saying to us? Help us to hear that voice from the Spirit in the Word today. Give us grace. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you view the book of Genesis primarily, especially this section, primarily as, or even the Bible as a whole, as a guidebook for how to live, you will become quite disappointed when you come to these chapters. The Bible is not ultimately a guidebook telling us how to live, how to do life. 
The Bible is, as Augustine said, letters from home, divine letters from home. It is God's voice to us, revealing to us the person and work of Jesus Christ. That is the point of the Scripture. Ultimately, as we have said through the Pentateuch in our study for the last year plus, it is God telling us, sinful man, how we can enjoy the presence of God again with unmeasured joy and delight. How we can know God, how we can enjoy Him. Because what we find in the first chapters of Genesis is why we don't enjoy Him. Why we hide from His presence. Because our sin has separated us from God. And so the Bible is telling us in this text particularly how we sinful people can be reconciled to God so that we might be able to enjoy his holy presence. Thus, the Bible is not about what God is about what God does in and through fallible people. It's not really about the fallible people. It's about what God does in and through them, which is very good news for us because we will often find ourselves like them and with them in these texts. He's accomplishing his divine mission of reconciliation and restoration, not only of individuals, those whom he has chosen, but the divine mission of restoration of this world that is cursed, bringing us from a garden to a city. But so much of what we read in this text of Scripture doesn't feel much like a garden at all. It's like a pretty dry and raunchy wilderness. But that characterizes our lives, doesn't it? That character is the world in which we live. And these are the chronicles of Jacob and his sons. There are some difficult topics that arise in these accounts, and I wanted to address a few of them briefly. I'm actually going to take a few minutes during our members' meeting today to go into a little more detail in these. But just very briefly, the patriarchs, who you read already, we're not going to read the text again, but your patriarchs often marry their cousins or relatives. Does the Bible then promote incest? No, the Bible unequivocally condemns incest in Leviticus 18, 6 through 18, and defines it. First cousin marriage, which is what Isaac and Jacob's marriage are, we're going to look at today, Jacob's marriage, first cousin marriage, is not technically incest. Yes, it is taboo. However, just to kind of broaden your thinking a little bit, it's mostly taboo in Western culture. This is a very kind of relatively uh, unique thing um, that has recently become taboo, the first cousin marriage. And so it's not like we should be got to be careful. We don't just take our current thing and sort of like transport it back on other people. Is saying, well, that, that's obviously crazy. Well, to us, maybe. Uh, furthermore, early on in the history of humanity, the gene pool is large enough that a first cousin marriage is actually more similar genetically to a fourth or fifth cousin marriage today. So it's essentially, which is, by the way, not even known. People don't even know when that happens. So it's not really a problem at all. The Bible does not condone, it condemns incest. Secondly, probably the bigger one, the bigger problem, well then, does the Bible condone or promote polygamy? Because here in our text, Jacob marries two women. Now here's an interesting little tidbit. The Bible forbids explicitly the marriage of sisters. So what happens here, regardless, is wrong. <laughs> um, in the book of uh, Deuteronomy, or sorry, Leviticus, 
marrying sisters is completely forbidden. But Deuteronomy 17, 17 actually forbids polygamy as well. It says, you shall not marry many wives. And someone said, well, just a few. But the context is, you shouldn't marry more than one wife. That's in the law. So the Bible actually condemns it with command or principle. So right away, just because someone practices it and the Word of God condemns it, the practice of faithful people does not negate the clear words of God, right? If you have children, you know this is true. If you tell your children not to do something, and then you do something, you would not say, and they come to you and say, well, you did it. You wouldn't say, oh, you're right. I guess that changes everything. I guess it's okay. You would acknowledge you were wrong, not that they can go ahead and do that. Similar situation when it comes to polygamy in the Bible. Furthermore, uh, God in a positive command, Jesus Christ and even Old Testament, but then New Testament, Jesus Christ in a positive command, uh, commands marriage to be with one man and one woman for one lifetime. In the presence of a positive command, anything other than that positive command is sinful. So polygamy is sinful, even though Jacob practices it, David practices it, Solomon practices it. That's the one I'll spend a little more time talking about, some more scriptural proofs, because that's a big one that skeptics will often bring up about the Bible, and we'll talk about that a little bit during our members' meeting today. The third sort of question that's sort of difficult when we approach a text like this is simply this, but why does it seem like God blesses such bad behaviors? I have two reasons why I believe that is. It's going to kind of be unfold in our text of Scripture. I'll give you the, the answer at the beginning, and then we'll see it unfold. First of all, God's blessing of sinful behaviors and sinful people is not an expression of his approval of them, but an expression of his faithfulness to his promises. See, he promised Jacob that he would be a great nation. And the fact that Jacob uses ungodly means to bring that, to do that, doesn't mean God blesses the ungodly means or is proven of the ungodly means. It means that God keeps his word. That's what it means. So first, it's God is faithful to honor his promise to sinful people. And here is the other part that just twists me up and I think it's beautiful, but it's hard. God is powerful enough to bend even wicked and sinful motives and actions to accomplish his ordained and goodwill. He's powerful enough, which is an understatement, to actually take the very thing that kills us, sin, and make it work for us, redemption. We'll see that throughout the text and see that unfold. I have another answer to why does God seem to bless such bad behaviors. Of course, he doesn't bless bad behaviors, but he blesses people when they do bad things. And aren't you glad that he does? Because have you ever experienced the blessing of God even though you've done some pretty bad things? So we have to remember that when we're coming to these texts and we say, how could Jacob, how could Laban? Yes, we should ask that question. We should also then immediately be asking the question, how could I? Because that's reality. Okay, that's set aside for now. 
Let's walk through this narrative again. Not going to read it, just walk through it in a little different way. The history we read today picks up Jacob on the run from his angry brother Esau, which we looked at last week. He's heading to Haran, the settlement in Padan Aram, where his mother's family lives. The story that we read of Jacob's arrival in Haran is similar to Genesis 24, many years before when Abraham had sent a servant to the same place to get a wife for Isaac. And now Jacob is going to Haran to get a wife for himself. So very similar. And we're going to see there's actually some comparisons in those two accounts. Two love stories. One of them is pretty sweet and they live happily ever after. The other one, not so much. Jacob comes to this well used to water the sheep herds in the region. It says that there's several flocks gathered around. There's a large stone over the well, probably to protect it from thieves. And what the plan seems to be is that when everyone arrives with their sheep, the men will take the stone off the well and then water all the sheep. Then they'll put it back on to preserve the water. They're waiting on one more flock to get there. Jacob comes there, and just like the servant, it's been a long journey. He's alone. You remember when, I, when, Isaac, when Abraham's servant came to this well, probably this well, he came with an entourage and camels and riches for a marriage gift. Jacob comes with his staff in his hand, empty, poor, nothing. And there's these people. He runs toward them. Who are you? Are you friends? You know Laban's family, Nahor, the, the, the settlement. Oh, yes, we know them very much. In fact, just coming up, coincidentally, that's Laban's daughter, Rachel, coming with her sheep. She's a shepherdess. And he looks over there and he sees Rachel and he is just excited about this. What does he do when he sees Rachel? He doesn't run to her. It's long-lost family. But Jacob is a really interesting guy. He runs to the well and apparently, single-handedly, muscles that stone off the water. And all the guys are like, <laughs> you see, I love how the Bible portrays men as they are. The pretty girl is walking up and he's got to be like, you know what? I'm suitable. And so he runs over there and he throws, you know, muscles that off, impresses her. Maybe she doesn't say anything about it, which is typical of women too. Um, all the bravado ends up with like, oh, nice, nice, thank you. But then there's this family reunion. He runs and he grabs her and he kisses her. There's nothing untoward in that kiss. There's nothing romantic in that kiss, I believe, because the Bible actually says that Laban kisses him too. It's, it's a family greeting. So he runs and he, he's found, he's not alone anymore. This is why he came. His family is there. Rachel does the same thing that uh, Rebecca did when the Isaac's servant came. She runs back to get Laban, her father, Isaac's servant ran back to get Bethuel, but runs back to, to the settlement to get her father, Laban. 
Laban does the exact same thing that he did so many years before, which is interesting because Laban, the previous story in Genesis, he kind of comes out as a bit of a creepy dude. Um, comes off that way, like it says in the other text in Genesis 24, it says, when he saw the camels, you know, he was like, ooh, money. He ran out, ran toward. I think, reading between the lines a little bit, he, when he finds out who this is, he runs out because, you see, Abraham had done quite well for himself, and Isaac had inherited everything, and here is Isaac's son, probably coming for the same reason Isaac's servant came, a wife. Let's welcome this man. He surely he's rich. I wonder if Laban was a bit disappointed, and that's why we see um, a month pass by. There's a month that elapses, not really anything happening, just Laban or, or um, Jacob just sort of settling in there with Laban and the family. After about a month, uh, Laban comes to Jacob and he says, you're my relative, you're my kin. You've been working with me and for me for some time now. I don't think that's really fair. What should I pay you to work for, for me? What your way should your wages be? Jacob knows exactly what he wants. You see, he has not been able to get over that beautiful shepherdess coming up to water her flocks, Rachel. And so he has this idea. He says, I'll tell you what, I will work for Rachel. Moses gives us a little bit of an interruption here. And he wants us to know why he would do that. You see, he says, there's two sisters. There's Rachel and there's Leah. Jacob is in love with Rachel. Now, you probably have read this story before, and so and you, when we read it together, you probably remember it said that Leah had tender eyes or delicate eyes. It, we don't really know what that means. It's open to interpretation. It literally means soft eyes. Since it's open to interpretation, interpretations abound. Uh, my favorite is is the Jewish Midrash that suggests that, the Jewish Midrash is bogus, by the way, but it suggests, it's just crazy. It suggests that, um, that she knew that she was the oldest was supposed to marry Jake, uh, Esau, and so she'd spent her life crying, and her eyes were red and bloodshot from crying over the prospect of marrying that angry, horrible man Esau. They didn't even know each other. Like, like this is ridiculous. But there, there's lots of these interpretive, like, what, why is her, what do you mean her eyes are tender? Some think it means that she was ugly. The problem with that, physically ugly, the problem with that is that there, there's words for that. There's words for unattractive, or, or, and, and that's not what's used. It's a very rare, unique, tender-eyed. When you take the idea that actually in that ancient Near East cultures, the eyes were a symbol of beauty, and if these are, that, that was what was considered the beautiful part of the body, most beautiful part of the body. When you take that in consideration, saying their eyes are soft or feminine, I don't think it's saying she's ugly. I think it's saying she's feminine. She's, she's attractive. But you might put it this way. She's average. She's a normal, feminine woman. Because of what it says very next in the test, it contrasts that, contrasts that and it says, but Rachel was beautiful of form and appearance. But Rachel's a knockout. 
That's the concept here. Leah's average, normal. She's like most women. But Rachel's like a supermodel. That's the idea in the text. Why is that even important? Why does that even come up? Because the author is telling us why Jacob prefers Rachel over Leah. Now, that is in no way is undermining Rachel's character. Nothing is said in this text about Rachel or Leah's character. And we ought not infer things from the, from, from the silence. That somehow, it, which can happen with the stereotype, oh, Rachel was beautiful, but she was a bad person. But Leah wasn't beautiful, so she was a good person. That's not the idea at all. That's not it here. The idea is that what's Jacob looking at? What's he drawn toward? He is driven toward the material, the external. Now, my reason for this interpretation is simply this. Isn't that fit the whole context of Jacob's stories? Isn't that what he's drawn toward all the time? What can I get? Wants to bless himself. I want the best. Give me the first. This is Jacob. So, they have this plan. The plan is, I'm going to work for seven years. Now, here's an interesting little bit of uh, cultural commentary. A marriage gift or the, the, the wedding gift, what wages are here, uh, this was in the Near Eastern culture. This was Mesopotamian cultures and Babylonian and kind of pieced together some ancient things from sources. Uh, there was this marriage gift that was given to the family um, from the groom in order for to have the bride's hand in marriage. It wasn't buying her, so to speak. It was a wedding gift that was given to the family. The maximum according to Jewish law uh, was um, 50 shekels. That was the maximum according to Jewish law. An average worker in Mesopotamian era during this time would make one and a half shekels a month. So if Jacob labors for seven years for Rachel, Laban's getting a haul of almost three times the maximum marriage gift. Laban's pretty good with this. Okay, the seven years sounds really good to me. He's not getting it in cash. He's getting it in uh, sweat equity. So he's actually getting more because whatever Jacob produces for him is also his. This is a pretty big deal. By the way, most received far less than the, than the maximum. Then this was generally passed on to the bride. The marriage gift was not then taken by the family and kept. It was generally passed on to the bride. Why? Well, it was her, it was her nest egg. It was in case her husband dies and she becomes a widow or he divorces her, she would have from her family some support, some financial support. And she could invest that and do what she wanted with that in order to grow her own wealth. And it was supposed to be hers separate from her husband's. So once again, Laban makes out like a bandit because not only does he make way more on this marriage than he would normally have made, but it comes straight to him and doesn't actually go to Rachel in the end because it makes him rich. Furthermore, we know from the end of the story that Laban finds a way to double his profits 
by tricking Jacob and getting another seven years out of him. Do you see kind of what's being built here? You've got a really deceptive, bad man. Greedy, materialistic, no good cheat. A deceiver, a supplanter, a heel grabber, as it were. Well, Jacob doesn't know that. This is family after all. And who better to borrow money from than family? I say that with a big tongue in cheek, of course. So this is like, you're going to be fine. You're going to get taken care of. Doesn't go so well. So seven years, and here's the thing. It says it was like a few days to Jacob. He could not wait for Rachel to be his. Seven years are up, and he comes to Laban, and he says, give me my wife. The Hebrew there is very staccato. Give it to her. Give her to me now. Seven years is long enough. Laban's like, all right, all right. So we have the wedding ceremony. Near Eastern wedding ceremonies are very ornate affairs. Um, they're week, they last a week long. And the first day, early in the morning on the first day, the groom with all of his family as his entourage goes to the bride's house and gets his bride. So imagine in this, Jacob's going by himself. He's got no one. He's vulnerable. He's got no one to defend him, no one to stand behind him. He's got no bros to say, wait a minute, wait, this is weird. He's by himself. He goes early in the morning to get his bride. They have big feasting that takes place all day long. Late into the night, they would feast. It says in our text, there was great feasting. And with that feast, the, the food and the wine is flowing. Um, they must have gone pretty hard at it, at this feast, because what we know happens. So at the end of that night, late at night, is the, the, so during, that, during the feasting and actually before the feasting and between things, they have ceremonies, different things going on. One of the main ceremonies that they have is an exchanging of vows or oaths that the bride and groom, kind of like we do. Um, and the exchanging of the dowry and the gifts, marriage gifts and stuff like that, and a contractual, legal contractual signing of documents and stuff like that. Uh, the marriage, however, is not legally um, done until the marriage is consummated that evening. So at any point during that ceremony, either side can actually back out and it's not a divorce, it's an annulment, it's just not a marriage until the consummation, and then it's, now it's done. It's a marriage, legally binding, uh, culturally binding, legally binding. Like I said, Jacob must have gone pretty hard because somewhere in the process, that night, we know that Laban switches out the brides for the consummation from Rachel to Leah. She would have been veiled. They both would have been veiled with everything but their eyes which is unique that there were the tender eyes, should have been noticeable. Big question that people always ask is, how could this happen and not Jacob or us? You know, what, what, how could this happen? Seems pretty obvious. You've been working for her for seven years. How do you not know? Okay, there's a lot left unsaid. The feasting implies something, right? People can drink an awful lot and not remember what they did the night before. So that's very common. The second thing is, I think it's impossible to read this story and not understand that Rachel and Leah, the whole family, is in on it. Now, I'm not suggesting I know their motives. 
That's, that would be wrong. I don't know, maybe they're compelled to, maybe they have to, maybe they don't have, but what I'm saying is that any moment, Rachel or Leah could have said something, right? And they didn't. Whatever the case may be, they don't stop it. Like I said, I'm not gonna do what the Bible doesn't do and try to figure out what their motives, why they wouldn't, because that's not what the story's about. They're willing, they're participants. Whether they're willing or not, I don't know. But when you add enough wine, it's dark enough, you're tired enough, been partying all day, and you've got by yourself with no one to back you up, you're in a ripe place to be deceived. Especially when you've been this as family, after all. And so Jacob wakes up in the morning, and he has not consummated his marriage with Rachel. He has consummated his marriage with Leah. Laban's excuse is legitimate. Found some um, documentation that Mesopotamian cultures, the firstborn was to be married first. Um, but not just married, actually, in some Mesopotamian cultures, it was a rule that the firstborn had to bear children first before the second could even bear children, so that the heir would go to the first and first down the line like that. So when he says, in our custom, the oldest has to marry first, I think Jacob is using his custom. Interestingly, that he didn't let Jacob know that custom seven years before, right? That wasn't an oversight, that was a clear plan. So he says, but you can still have Rachel. He sounds just like a kind of a, a creepy salesman, right? For just seven more years, zero interest, right? You can have a second wife, the one who's beautiful in form and appearance. And Jacob loves Rachel so much, he agrees to another seven years of labor. So he agreed to 14 years of labor to get this wife. They get married after a week, by the way, and then he lab labors for her, already married to her for the next seven years. In other words, it's kind of like on, now he's got to work it off his credit. He's, he's taken out a loan. Because that's what he says when he says, fulfill the week, then I'll give her to her, then you can work for seven more years. The story ends, or this part of the story, it continues on with their children, but that carries on for some time. The story ends with it saying Jacob also went into Rachel, he consummated the marriage with her, and he also loved Rachel more than Leah. And he served with Laban still another seven years. This whole ugly scene is setting up the next ugly scene. Because what we'll find in the next story is Rachel and Leah locked in a competitive animosity toward each other in order to bear offspring. And their motive, it says, throughout the next text is because they're just trying so hard, especially Leah, to get Jacob to love her. Once again, like we have seen, I was meaning to put this up a little earlier so you could see the family dynamics. Just if you want to look at that, you can. What we've seen through this story, though, I mean, at least to me, when I look at it, is um, this is ugly. This is not at all like Isaac's love story from Genesis 24. You remember that one where the servant goes and he prays the whole time? Like he prays before he gets to the well 
He prays when he gets there. He thanks God when he gets there. They ask him to stay for a month, and he's like, no, I'm going back right now. I want Rebecca to be uh, Isaac's wife. And they say, well, she gets the final say in it. And she says, I want to go get married. And she goes back to get married. And remember the scene at the end of that story in Genesis 24? Isaac, it's like straight out of some sort of uh, Hallmark movie. Isaac is like out in the field meditating in the evening. He's praying in the evening. And here comes Rebecca on the camel. And she gets off the camel and she veils herself and he runs to her and they love each other deeply. Now, that's, that's the love story that Genesis 24, which has got a lot of parallels to this one. But then who look at this one. And it's not very pretty, right? Why? What is going on here? What is God doing in this text? What is... What are we supposed to do with this? I mean, I think there's some pretty low-hanging fruit. Don't marry more than one person, right? Be content. Like, there's lots of, like, lessons, life lessons we could glean from this. And that wouldn't be wrong. But that's not the point of the text, usually, in these Old Testament narratives. And I think that's where often we err when we study these narratives is we just run toward those really like moral lessons for our lives, which they're there. Don't get me wrong. They are there. If, if you take nothing away, I suppose you should take away, love your wife, right? I mean, that's a good thing. And, and, and don't be a jerk. Don't be Laban. I mean, there's all sorts of things you can see in there. But when we look at the actual bigger picture of the text and something that Pastor Caleb is going to work through next week, he's going to be preaching the next section, Genesis 29, 31 through 30, 24. But what you see is this massive chiasm or polystrophy between the whole chronicles of Jacob, beginning with Jacob's divisiveness with his brother Esau back in chapter 27. Parallel, remember how a chiasm works? It kind of works parallel parallel with Jacob's reconciliation with Esau in Genesis 33 that we're going to get to. And then you remember there's that divine vision at Bethel that Jacob has. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. That's God's oracle, the promise. Jacob will meet God again at Bethel, recorded in chapter 32. And then he arrives in Haran in chapter 29. We read that a little bit earlier today, and he's outwitted by Laban. But then the story will turn in chapter 30 and Jacob will outwit Laban and leave Haran. And you remember what a chiasm structure is supposed to do. It's supposed to point to the middle as the primary purpose in the text. And what lies right at the middle of Moses' writing in Genesis are the birth or the establishment of the 12 sons of Israel. The text is pointing toward the 12 sons. Like little neon lights and arrows, the Spirit of God is saying, when you, when you look through all this ugliness, what you're supposed to see is through the ugliness and fallibility and material and the greed of men and women and deception, you see God fulfilling His promise to Abraham. I will make of you a great nation. And in your seed, all families of the earth will be blessed. God is building the blessed family through whom the Messiah will come. That's the point. 
We, we are looking at the individual stories. We're not just looking at the big picture, but every time we do this, I say the same thing because I think it's important. Don't miss the forest because of the trees. Don't miss the bigger work of God that he's doing because of the strange and unique and difficult elements and twists and turns throughout it. The point of the Jacob Chronicle, the story, which, by the way, only has God speaking in Bethel. We don't see God speaking in the text anywhere else. In fact, what I have said and, and think concerning this uh, text is that the divine silence is a very loud voice. The fact that God is not speaking in this text, and you contrast that with Genesis 24, where the servant prays and God gives him the sign of who's supposed to do it, and he prays again, and then he th that you have this devotion, and then you see Jacob never prays. God doesn't speak to him concerning this. This is the schemes of men and women. One takeaway, I suppose, could be for us Though the clothing, the customs, the cultures, the people change over 4,000 years of history, our hearts, our desires, our weaknesses, our struggles, our sins are quite similar. Crafty uncles, brothers and sisters in conflict, marriage woes, greed, lust, deception, selfishness, in other words, the more things seem to change, the more they stay the same. Maybe it's because we are all sons and daughters of Adam, and we are in his likeness. We are not that different, you and I, than the people in these stories. But the primary takeaway in this text is found in the structure of this particular story. Not necessarily the, the whole of this, but in our particular story here, this section with Jacob arriving in Haran and being outwitted by Laban. What's our primary takeaway here? Our primary takeaway here is the literary structure that Moses employs. Poetic justice irony. You can just hear it when Jacob wakes up and he's been tricked into marrying Leah and he looks to Laban and he goes, why have you deceived me? Funny you should say that, Jacob, right? Whose name means deceiver, heel grabber, didn't you just deceive your family to gain something? In fact, the irony is striking throughout the whole text. Jacob betrays his father with a kiss, then greets Rachel with a kiss, and then is kissed by Laban, who will eventually betray him. Remember when Jacob betrayed his father with a kiss, came in near and kissed him. 
Jacob deceives his father, stole from his older brother by substituting the younger himself for the elder, right? To receive the significant birthright blessing. Laban deceives Jacob and steals from him his labor by substituting the elder, Leah, for the younger, securing for himself a significant financial blessing. Isaac cannot see clearly. He is old, nearly blind. And so is taken advantage of by Jacob, who disguises himself with the other senses as Esau. Jacob does not see clearly in the dark. Perhaps also the wine and food have blurred his vision and thus is taken advantage of by Leah disguised as Rachel. Isaac's favoritism for Esau over Jacob brings the discord between the brothers. Jacob's favoritism for Rachel over Leah brings discord between the sisters and eventually ugly discord between his own sons, culminating in his older sons trying to murder his younger son. I think it was Robert Bruce, the English poet, who said, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. You see, the point, the spiritual point of the text is this poetic justice, this irony in the text. It's too obvious to be coincidental. It's too obvious to be coincidental. But how does that teach us anything? Does it just teach us not to be deceptive? No, I think there's something bigger than that here. Let me give you an example of this. We're almost done. One of the most misquoted verses in the Bible, Matthew 7, right? Judge not that you be not judged. Everybody stops there. should read a little further. For with what judgments you judge, the same will be meted out to you. Contrary to popular opinion, Jesus is not calling on us to make, Jesus is not calling us to not make judgments or even correct a rebuke. The text goes on and says, says essentially, don't make hypocritic, hypocritical rebukes. Be introspective before you're ever extra, extra, outside looking extrospective. I don't think that's a word. In Matthew 7, we're being reminded of the principle of sowing and reaping. That when you judge another person, you should not be then surprised when you get judged. Like the individual who takes someone to court for a frivolous lawsuit, and then the judge turns around and goes, You are guilty. What? <laughs> you know, that, that's the idea there the law of sowing and reaping, justice. While divine justice is often delayed from our standpoint, and ultimate justice will only be found in eternity, God does often allow, even cause, the natural course of things to happen, to humble us, to teach us about the justice of God. 
the story of Jacob reinforces the practical and theological lesson. Jacob is a clever deceiver who experiences a form of talionic judgment. The grifter was grifted. The thief was stolen from. The greedy was taken advantage of. As Derek Kidner uh, poetically put it, quote, through Laban, Jacob drank deeply of his own medicine of duplicity. Furthermore, we, especially, we need to remember, especially some of our more immature members, our younger members, our youth, need to remember that one cannot sin in a vacuum. Sin always takes us further than we wish to go and hurts those around us deeper than we imagined it would. Jacob has spent most of his life manipulating the system to work for him. But now his deceit is coming back on him. But not only him. We will read on in the text and see how far this extends in consequence. His future marriage, his future self, his future children, future community. Young people, be wise and fear the Lord. But wherever justice appears as a theological lesson, mercy is not far behind. Because while Jacob is experiencing a sort of retribution for his deceptive and manipulative behaviors, divine mercy is still running rampant. God is yet merciful, solely based on his divine word. Not only does he preserve and provide for Jacob, his chosen one, through the deceptions of Jacob himself and through Laban's deception, but God allows him to suffer the consequence of discipline. Discipline For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, disciplines every true son, but he does not cast him away. He does not turn away from him. Jacob and Leah and Rachel are still mercifully blessed by God. Even Laban comes out blessed. Not because they deserved it, but that is what mercy actually is. It's the blessing of God because we don't deserve it. You cannot earn mercy. You cannot work for it. Simply receive it because God loves mercy. He delights in it. And so ultimately, the underlying theological theme is this mystery of judgment and mercy, providence and sovereignty, the silence of God, and the chastening Jacob experiences at the hand of Laban indicates to us that the Lord is not approving of the deception. God's silent voice in the text is a strong witness. He does not approve of any of this manipulation, polygamy, greed. He in the text is obviously transcendent. He's absent, as it were. Not causing them to sin. He doesn't need them to sin to fulfill his word. That is, he is apart and distanced above the moral or immoral actions of Laban and Jacob in the text. He is holy and separate from their sin. Yet beneath the surface, we see that God is also imminent. He's near. He's near to the deceived and the deceivers to fulfill his sovereign will. In the Jacob stories, God only reveals himself, as I said, in the beginning and the end in Bethel. Most of Jacob's life, God is, seems to be absent. And Jacob seems to feel like if, if, you gotta, if it needs to be done, if you got to do it, you got to do it yourself. He's going to do everything he can to bless himself. 
But God is not absent. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He's transcendent as it relates to the sinful choices of man, but he is imminent as it relates to using those sinful choices to bring about his promises. And so what are we to take away from this text? Oh, how amazingly good and powerful our God is. That's what we're to take away. The mysterious and nuanced but beautiful doctrine of compatibilism. Hating the sin of the people, yet using those sinful choices to somehow bring about his perfect and good will. That's often repeated in the Pentateuch. You remember one of Jacob's own sons experiences this, right? And he recognizes it. And Joseph says the words, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Laban meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Jacob meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Rachel and Leah meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. But it doesn't just end with Jacob and Leah and Rachel and Laban and all these folks. It moves all the way into the New Testament. The ultimate expression of the mystery of God's sovereignty and His work in providence in the gospel itself. As Peter explains in Acts chapter 2, 22 through 23. Sinful hands, lawless hands, wicked hands crucified Christ who was foreordained by God to this. They meant it for evil, the death of Jesus Christ. God meant it for good, the redemption of multitudes of people. His people. God is so powerful that the very thing that seeks to destroy us, He will turn to use to save us. Christ became sin. Satan sought to bite His heel. We rebel against Him mean it for evil for Christ becoming sin is God working good for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him